excited to be back in Pilgrim's Progress. We've got some relatively short chapters, at least how the edition we have kind of breaks it up. Um, so we should be able to get through around four or five of those and get all the way up till uh, when Christian arrives at the palace. Beautiful. So that's the goal this morning. Let me begin with a word of prayer and we'll jump in. God, thank you that you are um, our peace. You are the one in which uh, we have been reconciled to you through the work of your son. Lord, when all around us it seems uh, chaotic, uh, confusing, distracting, we're not sure what's going on in our lives, we can be reminded that we have peace with God um, through the work of your Son and what a comfort that is. Lord, as we look to Pilgrim's Progress this morning and looking to Christians' continued uh, journey to the celestial city, I pray that we would be warned by the uh, dangers that he confronts and also the snares that oftentimes we put ourselves into due to our careless walk and negligence. Pray that we would learn from those examples and walk closer uh, with you hand in hand in sweet fellowship and communion. I ask that you'd bless this time in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Again, like I said, welcome back. Always kind of a quick recap of last week. We had Christian. He finally arrives at the wicket gate. Uh, which I would argue is where he is saved. He is justified, if you will, by faith. He's declared righteous uh, by the man at the door, goodwill, uh, which I would argue stands for Christ himself. He is the one who uh, pulls Christian through the door, if you will, um, and I think signifying God's sovereign grace there. Uh, We move on. We came to the house of the interpreter, which is where we spent most of our time last week, I believe. Kind of the weeks all kind of blurred together. I'm like, I can't remember what we're even talking about. You're just going along. Um, yeah, the house of interpreter, right? Uh, the emphasis here seems to be on the influence of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work in the believer's life? Uh, interpreter uh, could, you know, kind of stand for, you know, a pastor or uh, something like that. But clearly the emphasis is on uh, the Holy Spirit and how he sanctifies us. He shows him seven pictures or seven illustrations of biblical truth. Uh, If you guys haven't read those, I'd really encourage you to read those. They're very profitable. Um, Sometimes, you know, maybe one will will land with you more than the other one, and that's totally fine. Uh, I find the one particularly helpful uh, illustrating the the work of the law and sweeping up the dust, right? That's what the law does uh, when we preach it uh, or we hear it preached. We read it to ourselves. Um, Same thing. What we need then is the water of God's grace to um, actually quench Uh, the dust that is stirred up by sin. And then also I find really encouraging um, where he sees this man uh, pouring water over fire and it's this picture of the work of God's grace in someone's heart and there's Satan and his devils, or I would say, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to quench that, the work of uh, of God's grace in our hearts. And then you see, you know, kind of behind this wall, it's often unknown to us, but how does, you know, the fire of our hearts are just steadfast, hey, Everything is wrong. I'm facing all these trials and temptations, but yet I'm still just clinging to Christ. Where does that come from? It's not from you. It's actually from Christ himself. He's the one who, with his oil uh, in the picture there, keeps the flame going. So I find those two particularly encouraging. Uh, We ended last week looking at the despairing reprobate in the iron cage, which for most people, if you haven't, you know, if you started reading this book and you haven't stopped already, you stop here because it's just like, this is horrible. Um, And it is. It is a very sobering picture. That's the point. Um, and so that is where we stopped. A few points here um, that we touched on. Bunyan's probably referring to a real historical person 
either a, a guy in his day or just a generation before. Um, Hebrews 12, 17, this verse on Esau and how he sought the blessing um, but was rejected was a key verse for Bunyan. I argued that he essentially kind of misinterprets that verse and that actually would have, it would have saved him a lot of uh, despair if he focused on that verse a little more. But I think that's where this uh, image of the despairing reprobate comes from. Point three, it says, not teaching that a true Christian can fall from grace and become reprobate or, or you know, they cannot be saved. That's not true. Uh, Christ, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Bunyan very much believe in that as well. Those who are saved, uh, God will keep them until the end. A couple more points here. Professing believers can and do fall away. We know this. I mean, this is just so clear from the New Testament. The Old Testament, right? Even with Israel, we see um, those who wander and depart, who are not truly a part of Israel, as we would say. Um, so that's very true. Point five, there is a condition from which it is impossible to repent. Yet, verse, or point six here, I think these kind of go together. Can a person be unable to repent and know that they are lost for all eternity? Um, I think that's a harder question to answer because um, typically people who are asking, man, can I not repent? Typically, if you're asking that question, that means you can, right? So it's kind of a mental paradox, if you will. Um, but clearly, the biblical teaching in Hebrews 6 in particular is very clear that those who have you know, once been enlightened, they've you know, received spiritual truths and understand these things, for them to fall away, it is impossible uh, for them to come back to the faith. So anyways, that was last week. Again, I think Bunyan's intent uh, with this, um, the despairing reprobate, is to cause us to sober up and be watchful. It's the same thing with all the Hebrews warning passages, right? You're not supposed to just sit there and go like, oh my goodness, like this is just terrifying. It's like, man, hey, you know what? I do need to pay much closer attention to what I've heard lest we drift away from it. Uh, those who are saved, I would argue, are those who heed the warning passages. They know that if I, I wander, I will. And so I need to refocus in on first essentials, okay? I think that's what he's trying to do there. Chapter 9, Christian arrives at the place of deliverance. This is the cross, the scene of the cross. Typically, one of those other scenes, hey, if I'm somewhat familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, you know this scene because he loses his burden, right? And that's, that's an amazing part. So maybe if you haven't stopped the despairing reprobate, you stop here because it's like, oh, good, he lost his burden. Okay, I don't care that the rest. No, shame on you. Um, yeah, so like I said, the next couple chapters are really short here. So hopefully we can cover a decent amount of chapter ground, although not actually that much like page ground, if that makes sense. So anyways, place of deliverance, the cross. This is page 47 here. Now I saw in my dream that the highway along which Christian was to proceed was fenced in on both sides with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Therefore, burdened Christian ran up this way, though not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. So he's come through the wicket gate, and now on this path on both sides, he's walled in by salvation. What is he trying to picture here? I would say, in other words, he's saved, and it's as if God's grace is going to keep him on that path. Okay? He is now uh, you know, on the road of salvation, if you will. Um, it's not that he is you know, progressively being justified. We don't believe in that, right? You're justified in one moment, right? But there is progressive sanctification that happens. Um, one commentator in his book, I thought it was really helpful how he describes what's going on here. He says, um, Christian has been saved at the wicked gate. Okay, that's momentary justification. That moment in time where he is justified by faith in Christ. Momentary justification. He's continued on in saving faith at the house of interpreter. That's progressive sanctification, right? 
And that's also, honestly, just the rest of the book, right? It's just progressive sanctification. So momentary justification at the wicked gate, progressive sanctification at the house of interpreter and on the way out. Now at the cross, what you have here is what I would say is kind of momentary sanctification. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay. Um, I, I think if you just step back and think about it, this is actually common in the Christian life. Okay. This happens, right? We're being sanctified little by little. Uh, we understand that. You know, sometimes it seems like we're going backwards. Um, you know, if you're honest with ourselves, it's like, man, I don't really feel like I'm growing. That's a good reminder. Typically, people who aren't being sanctified aren't having that reminder, right? Um, so that's good. Um, but we are growing. But sometimes, it, quite often in the Christian life, if you ask people, they're justified, they're saved, but then there's some moment, you know, five years later on, a sermon they hear. Uh, a book they're reading or, or a conversation with a friend where they wake up to like, whoa, like I need to pay more attention to this. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? Like, I think this is very common in my life. I don't know exactly when I was saved. I think actually at a young age, but there were like three, there are three events that I can specifically think of as a sermon. Um, actually, no, it wasn't a sermon. It was just kind of a whole youth conference event. David knows about that. Uh, not the greatest event, but the Lord used it, right? Amen. Um, and uh, so there was that. There was also a sermon I listened to in high school and then a sermon I listened to in college that were just like, boom, wake up moments. Okay. I don't think I was, I mean, biblically, this is wrong. I, it wasn't that I was justified and I lost my justification and then I was re-justified. You, you see what I'm saying? Somewhere in there I was justified, but then the Lord used a, a definite moment to cause me to grow even more and wake me up. You guys tracking with me? Is anyone else like, yeah, I understand that, and that's happened to me. Yeah, I, I think that's common, okay? So I think that is what Bunyan is trying to describe here uh, at the cross. We could think about it like this. It's not another salvation, but sometimes it kind of feels like that to us in our experience. You see what I'm saying? Like It's like, I, I feel like I got saved over again. That's not true, but the Lord used that. Dennis, you have a question? Yeah, it's kind of a progressive realization. Yes, yeah, that's good, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's what happens is in those moments, Christ and through the work of his spirit, calls us back to, hey, this is who you are. And, I'm, and you're realizing, man, I need to start living like that. Okay? And so I think that is what Bunyan is describing here. You know, that moment we have that newfound joy, sense of peace, uh, and such and such. And I'm sure as you've gotten used to by now, this parallels Bunyan's personal experience. Okay? This happened to him. He was justified, um, he would say, but then just struggled with spiritual depression for years and years and years and years. And then later on, he finally comes to a place of newfound joy um, and assurance of salvation, okay? So, so I think that's what's going on here at the cross. He continues here. So he ran in this direction until he came to a place where the way ascended up a small hill. And at the top stood a cross, while below it was a sepulcher. Think of the stone tomb, right? So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden fell, from his, fell off his back. Then it continued to tumble down the hill until it fell into the mouth of the grave and was seen no more. I, beautiful imagery. I love that there. At this, Christian felt glad and overjoyed. You see in the footnote there, Bunyan says, When God releases us from the burden of our guilt, we are as those who leap for joy. So he felt glad and overjoyed, and in his excitement he exclaimed, He has given me rest by means of his sorrow and life by means of his death. Then he stood still for a while to look with wonder and amazement. For it was so surprising to him that the sight of the cross should accomplish the release of his burden. Therefore, he looked again and again, even until inward springs of water flowed down his cheeks. That's a beautiful scene. I would suggest 
as Christian does here, that in the Christian life, we need to look at the cross again and again. Okay? And, and I wanted to spend some time on that and just kind of think through this. What do we mean by that? What does it mean to you know, quote, look at the cross again and again? What, what, what do you guys think I'm trying to say? What do you think Bunyan's trying to say? You know, he's almost surprised that just by gazing at the cross, this is how his burden is relieved. What do you, what do you think we're talking about there? Yeah, Lamar. Good. Yep, David. Yeah, I mean, just to really um, expand on the, in our place, I, I was thinking about this a lot lately, that we shouldn't neglect thinking about God's wrath because that's what Christ experienced, like mm. the full might of the wrath of the Father. Yeah. Um, and so we just consider that, to be grateful, to be thankful, to be humble. Right. Good. Yeah. Natalie? Yeah, like you look at the cross, like uh, actively reminding yourselves yeah. to look. It's not something we can do passively. No, we have to be proactive in doing it. Yep. Good. Yep. Also not to feel condemned over your sin. Because mm. as you grow in sanctification, you notice your sins more and more. Yeah. And you see the cross, you don't feel condemned. Yeah. Good. Yeah. No, those are good. I, I want to keep moving here. Those are all great. I think, you know, whenever we say that, whenever I say that, and I think this is vocabulary we need to use with ourselves and with other people, when we say, hey, you need to look to Christ, you need to look to the cross, really what we're saying is, Consider the gospel. Slow down and think and meditate on the truths of the reality of what has been accomplished on Calvary. You can, I mean, it's right for us to oftentimes pause and consider our sinfulness. I mean, if you sit there long enough, you will just like, but you don't want to say they're too long, right? Because then you're just going to be, man, that burden is going to get heavier again. Hey, the burden that just fell off, it's like, it's back, okay? Um, But, and this is, I think, key, I think Bunyan would say that that happens, Oftentimes in our lives, it's not that, you know, you've got your burden and then it's just poof, it's gone. I think sometimes later on in the Christian life, you know, you get a burden back. And how do you get rid of it again? You go back to the cross. You're considering the gospel, who you are, who God is and all of his holiness, who Christ is and what he has accomplished on your behalf. Uh, You know, he lived a perfect life of obedience. He died a sinless death. He uh, imputes his righteousness to you. He takes your sin on himself. Um... That's what we mean by looking at the cross, okay? So when you're, when you're helping someone, you know, they're struggling with this or whatever, don't just say, hey, man, you, you got you to gotta look, look to the cross. Start there, but then go to like Ephesians 2, right? Hey, this is who you were, right? You were dead in your transgressions and sin, but God, in his grace and mercy, he has done all this. You see what I'm saying? Walk through passages like that with them. Uh, you know, or John 17, you know, Christ's high priestly prayer, just amazing passages like that. So that's what we mean. Keep that in the, your back pocket, if you will. Now as he stood... Looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones, these angels, approached and saluted him with the benediction. Let peace be upon you. So the first shining one said to him, your sins have been forgiven. The second stripped Christian of his rags and clothed him with a complete change of garment. The third also set a mark upon his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal on it, which he directed should be looked at as he ran and handed in upon arrival at the gate of the celestial city. So these messengers went their way, then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. So I would argue here, Christian, he's realizing the truths of Scripture. He's having a greater understanding of who he is in Christ, his position 
in Christ by faith. He's been justified, washed. Um, again, I think it's just true experientially, right? We read our Bibles, we hear a sermon, and we, man, I never understood the full ramifications of what it means that Christ died in my place and his righteousness was imputed to me. Like, like man, the good works I do don't increase my justified standing, right? You know, things like that. So just to uh, tuck away here, um, the scroll that he receives is the promised Holy Spirit. Bunyan footnotes here, Ephesians 1.13, um, which talks about uh, uh, Christ has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a seal um, until the day of redemption, I believe is the language there. And so that's what's signified there with the scroll. Okay, so just tuck that away when we get to when he loses that. Because they're like, oh, did he lose the Holy Spirit? What's going on there? Okay, I want to put Christian's song here. I love this. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anyone ease the grief that I was in. Until I came here, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the cords that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. So I think you see very clearly there, you know, this isn't some weird, you know, like Roman Catholic crucifix theology. When we say like, look at the cross, we're not saying like get a literal wooden cross and just like have someone stare at it, right? Like, don't do that, okay? Um, <laughs> I'm not saying there's like, I'm not saying symbols are bad, but I'm just saying like, I mean, Roman Catholic theology, that's what it is. But that's all we're saying. Like, what's he saying? He's talking about the man that was put to shame for me. Think about Christ. Think about him and what he has done for you. Three kind of summary uh, points here. These are all from uh, Derek Thomas. Three biblical realities that occur at the cross. Helpful things for us to consider. Number one, the burden of sin is lifted at Calvary. The burden of sin is lifted at Calvary. The cross is where salvation was accomplished. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The penalty of sin that we bear is removed when we come to Christ by faith. He has paid the price fully and completely. What I would say, though, here is that uh, the presence of sin is so real uh, in our lives, even after we're saved, in our sanctification, we still deal with besetting sins. And I would argue that we've grown so used to carrying that weight, that burden of sin, we shouldn't be surprised that even though it's been removed, sometimes it still feels like it's still there. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like that, you know, the monkey on the back, like I can't get this thing off. Um, I was just thinking about this. I asked my wife, is this a good illustration? And she was like, yeah, it's fine. Um, I was like, it's kind of like with spiders, right? You know, it's like you think you feel a spider or you see one, and then it's like you're paranoid and you like feel bugs all over you and stuff like that, right? And she was like, yeah, I guess that works. I don't, is that, that happens to me, okay? I see a bug and I feel a bug. and I'm like, um, Sin is often like that, right? We know biblically it's been removed, but sometimes it still feels like it's still there. You see what I'm saying? Um, so be reminded of that. Maybe that illustration helps or maybe it confuses you. Number two, a great exchange takes place at Calvary. Our sins are accredited to him. His righteousness is accredited to us. I, just, I already alluded to this, but such an important truth to remember that the good works that we do do not contribute to our justification, right? You can't be more justified, okay? Because Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect life of obedience, his perfect life of good works, if you will, is what's been credited to us, okay? So we, we can't improve that or diminish it, right? Like, that's there, okay? Um, rather, we perform good works because of our justified standing, right? Because of who we are in Christ and the work he's doing in our hearts, uh, he's changing us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
I wanted to quote here the um, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. So this came out in 1689. Um, I think Bunyan died in 1688, so just a year later. Um, so very much, much of the same theology that Bunyan would have um, subscribed to. And by and large, our church, you know, this is a confession. We've quoted this several times on you know, our worship nights, Sunday mornings. Um, it's a great, great confession of faith. I just think it's so clear here on justification. Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this not for their sake, for Christ's sake alone, and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness, right? It's not that our faith is righteous, right? No, it's Christ who is righteousness. Um, and that's what his righteousness is imputed to us. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. So it's all in Christ, his life of obedience and his death in our place. And then, of course, remember, this faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. So even the faith that we have um, does not come from us. Very helpful on that point there. Point number three here. Oh, point number three here. Sorry, sorry. Child protesting. Assurance of salvation is found at Calvary. I think this is what Bunyan is really seeking to illustrate here. We gain assurance by continually gazing at the cross, contemplating Christ. We're saved by the person and work of Jesus. If we're ever struggling with that thought, we continue to reflect on who he is. Now, with all this in mind, I think the next question you have there, and I will admit, this is kind of a trick question, okay? So... Just know if you're like, I know the answer to this. Just know I'm trying to trick you, okay? Should we ever move on from the cross in our progress towards the celestial city, okay? Should we ever move on? Do we ever get away from the cross? And probably you're all thinking, no, right? You've told us this whole time. We live gospel-centered life, you know, all this stuff, okay? That's true, okay? No, do not move on from the cross. We keep it at the forefront of our minds, continually fixing the gospel in our hearts, and we go back to that. But I also want to say yes, in the sense that God has still called us to live out our lives. What I mean by that is like, notice like the story doesn't end here. Like it's not like Christian just like gazes at the cross for all eternity and it's just like the end, right? Like you see what I'm saying? Like he moves on. He continues on in the Christian life, um, continually looking back um, at the cross and the work of Christ. So I think sometimes there can be a, you know, it's like you got to live a gospel-centered life, gospel-centered life, gospel-centered life. Amen. True. We need to do that, okay? But God has also called us to know the whole counsel of his word, right? And learn all these other things. And he still called us to our families and our vocations and our workplaces and stuff like that. So don't think that gospel-centered life means I become a monk, okay? And that's all I do, right? You see the, like, tension between the two? So it's kind of a trick question. But also just a reminder, we still are called to live the life that God has called us to live, Okay. Mm-hmm. Right, right. He, yep. Yep, very true. Can you repeat yep. the butt part? The butt part. The however part should be on the forefront of our mind, but you got to... You expecting to remember what I said? I don't know. Okay, you got this little space here, Caleb. Oh, yeah. No, I, I would just say, yes, we, I mean, as much as Matt just said, we must keep the cross, you know, tethered to our hearts and minds. Um, but at the same time, God has called us to live out our lives and our vocations and our families and all these things. 
Um, and he's called us to know the whole counsel of his word, to meditate on all those truths. So we can't just sit in Ephesians 2 or Romans, you know, the first nine chapters. Like, we shouldn't just read those chapters. You see what I'm saying? Like, we need to know those truths and how they relate to all of Scripture and back and forth. So that's, that's all the point. Yeah, I'm sorry. You have the, the back side of the notes. You've got, the, you've got some opening there. So. Okay, chapter 10. Chapter 10. Yes. Right. No, I think that's true. Oh, that's a very good point I didn't think about. Yeah, it become very, very, um, yeah, we can lose, if you will, the cliche song title. We can lose the heart of worship. You know, it's just like, oh, I've got a problem. I've got to go think about the cross. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, it's not what you want to be doing, right? God doesn't have our hearts. He doesn't, he doesn't want our worship. So, yeah, no, very good point. Can't become formulaic. Okay, next chapter here. I think in the book it's just like one page. Christian overtakes simple sloth and presumption. He comes to the other side of the hill, and he sees three men asleep. They've got chains on their heels. What do the chains represent? I don't know exactly. Bunny doesn't say. Some, something relating to probably sin and guilt, something like that. Um, that's typically what it means in the book. Um, but hopefully you kind of see here like, like the parallels between Christian and these men, right? So Christian has just been freed from the shackles of his burden, right? That's been released. And then he comes to three men who are shackled and tied up. Okay, so you see the contrast between the two, right? Um, Christian is overjoyed, right? He's been leaping for joy at, you know, the work of Christ and all this stuff. And you've got these three men who are just sleeping and indifferent, right? So you see the contrast between these two right after uh, the scene of the cross. He tries to waken them up, uh, rouse them to their feet. You guys are in great danger, just sleeping here. Satan is a roaring lion. He's going to devour you guys. You see the paragraph here. This is page 49. They all respond, quote, in an unconcerned manner, as Bunyan puts it. This first man here is simple. Okay, simple. I don't see any danger. There's nothing going on here. Uh, simple, I think Bunyan here is drawing on the book of Proverbs, right? Remember Proverbs, you've got the simple person. Um, you've got the, uh, the wicked, the fool, and the scoffer. Uh, very oftentimes the simple person is put in parallel with those, okay? The, the scoffer, the wicked, stuff like that. But I think this is key, uh, is that simple has more of a specific connotation of someone who's inexperienced, who is young, who's naive, okay? Who, they're not in and of themselves wicked, right? Wicked, you know, has much more of an antagonistic, right? Someone who's a fool, who's a scoffer. It's like, ah, oh, God's word is stupid. I don't want that, Blah. okay? A simpleton, you know, if we will, is just kind of like, uh, I don't know, like, it is what it is, okay? Oftentimes, the simpleton just goes along with the pattern of the world and falls into wickedness, falls, into, falls in line with the scoffer, um, but typically referring to, you know, a youth, inexperienced person. So uh, clearly a warning there. Sloth, right? I love the word sloth. You know, it's like I joke about, you know, it's like if you're taking a break of something, you're going to enjoy a meal. It's like, oh, I'm going to go practice some sloth and gluttony. You know, I just, I just find that hilarious. I don't know why. Um, but sloth, right? Very much, he just wants more sleep, right? I just want to sleep. I don't care, right? Um, what does he say? Let me just have a little more sleep, right? Um, I think just a reminder, we can tend to be lazy in and of ourselves. And I don't think, remember, this is an allegory. I don't think he's just merely talking about physical sleep. I think he's talking about spiritual sleep. And I think that's a key later on, is we can grow spiritually slothful and slow down and be negligent and lazy. And then finally, presumption. Every tub, this is what he says, every tub must stand on its own bottom. And a phrase, I mean, I use that so frequently, I don't need to explain that one. 
Um, <laughs> here's someone who just presumes that everything's fine, right? Um, you know, more of probably what he's saying is like, everyone's the captain of their own ship, right? We, maybe you've heard that one more. It's like, hey, every person's got to figure it out for themselves. Um, I don't need any help. So he's prideful. He's got presumption. I notice Bunyan's footnote here. If God does not open the eyes of the soul, there will be no persuasion of the truth. Clear display, uh, clear display of his belief in the sovereignty of God in salvation, the necessity of him to open the eyes of our hearts to the truth of the gospel. Christian, he's obviously saddened by this, uh, that they just don't care. Um, he offers to help them. I think this is also just a sobering reminder. Like, they're literally just on like the other side of the hill of the cross, right? Like, they are so close to understanding the gospel, right? Like, they're, they, they're right there. Um, I think it's just a sobering reminder. It's like, we can be so close to the truth and yet so far, right? Um, so continually pleading with the Lord. Uh, just, again, a quick scene. I want to move on. What, what's the purpose of a scene like this? What is Bunyan's intent? Um, I think the whole book, especially on the other side of the wicked gate, now that we're talking about sanctification in the Christian life, I think it's a call to self-examination, right? A call back to, are there any aspects of my life where I'm being slothful? Are there any aspects of my life where I'm just being simple? Are, are there any aspects of my you know, Christian walk where I'm, I have presumption? I'm just presuming on the grace of God. It's calling us to not just go, wow, those guys, man, that's a bummer. It's, it, you want to find yourself in them. What aspects of my life are like that? Okay. Chapter 11, formalist and hypocrisy. Next page here. As I mentioned last week, these are false converts who they do not come by way of the wicket gate. They actually, it's described as they come tumbling over the wall of salvation. Okay. If you guys read it, you see that. They, they climb over the wall. Formalist. He is a religious performer. Hypocrisy is a religious pretender, okay? Formalist, like I said, a religious performer, all the, does all these things externally, and obviously they're very similar. Hypocrisy is a religious pretender. With formalists here, don't, don't think of someone, it's like, oh, they wear formal attire. You know, they wear tuxedo to church, okay? That, that's not what he's talking about here, okay? Much more of, you know, you think of, um, I think it's 2 Timothy 3, uh, uh, men who have the appearance of godliness or the form of godliness, but deny its power, okay? Outwardly appear godly, but inwardly they deny its power. And in Bunyan's day, very much alluding to the Anglican Church, the Church of England, where you had a lot of legalism, as we saw with Mr. Worldly Wiseman, a lot of guys who had the form of godliness, but did not possess its power. Christian asks them, you know, where they're from, where they're going, foremost in hypocrisy, we were born in the land of vainglory and are going to Mount Zion for the purpose of receiving praise. Just pause there. Like, man, I hope you guys are reading this. It's like, wow, that's not good. Like, if anyone's like, I'm going to heaven to receive praise. It's like, okay, we have a problem here. Um, but, I mean, I was just reminded, it's not, not, I mean, a lot of the false religions, false cults, it's not that what they do, right? Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, that's a big part of it. Uh, their own self-glory, right? So Christian then says, this is, again, why I think the wicked gate is talking about Christ and salvation. Then why did you not enter at the wicked gate, right? He doesn't point them to the cross. He says, hey, you need to go to the wicked gate, which is located at the beginning of the way. Don't you know that it has been written, he who does not enter in by the door but climbs up some other way, that same person is a thief and a robber. Uh, maybe you guys caught that there. He's alluding to John 10, right, where uh, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd, that there are people who don't come in through the gate. They climb in the other way. Uh, they are false sheep. Formalists in hypocrisy say, hey, you know, the wicked gate's too far away. 
this is going to work just fine. Besides, this is established custom. You know, we've just been doing this for years. I think they even say like a thousand years. Like we've been doing this. There's no problem. Okay. Um, I think practically we can just apply this. You know, today's world, not much has changed, right? A lot of people are just operating based on, hey, this is what my parents did. You know, this is just, hey, people for hundreds of years have been saying, you know, God doesn't exist. So I, I just don't see what the point is. And they're not actually actually investigating it for themselves. They're just like, well, this person says, and so it must be fine, right? I don't think much has changed. They continue by saying on page 51, uh, it says, practically speaking, we are now in the way. So what does it matter how we got in? If we are in, then we are in. And Christian replies, I walk according to the master. You walk according to your own imagination. Okay? You might not think there's much of a difference between us, but there is a difference between us. And that's going to be revealed on the day of judgment. Right? You guys can think of, I think it's Matthew 7. Those people say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? We thought we were walking according to the truth. Right? What's going on? So, very sobering reminder. They talk a little bit more. Formalist and hypocrisy. Uh, they eventually laugh at Christians' biblical convictions. They separate a little bit, um, but then they kind of come together at the foot of the hill of difficulty, which we'll talk about. I just wanted to pause and consider as a group. I know we're running out of time. I don't want to keep you guys late, but how would you, I think this is worth us to think about, how would you counsel someone who is concerned whether or not they've rightly come to Christ or have, quote, tumbled over the wall, right? Think about this. I, I think this is helpful for us to think about. You know, people will struggle with assurance, man, have I truly come by Christ the way I'm supposed to, or am I just this false pretender and, I, and I've come tumbling over the wall? What do you guys think? How would you talk to that person? Emma? Oh, sorry. Emma, go ahead. And then Jeff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's good. Just real quick, and then I'll uh, Jeff and Kristen. I think that's key. I with a lot of these things, you know, man, I, I just don't know where I'm at, and I, I, I'm afraid I maybe come the wrong way. Is just put the question back on them. Say, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? What has He done for you? Well, he's my only source of righteousness. Um, I, I know that he has paid the price and I'm clinging and trusting to him. Okay, they respond like that. It's like, okay, we're good. Like, let's just think through maybe, you know, Philippians where we don't need to be anxious or something like that. But I think that's great. So I'll stop saying it. Jeff, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I guess it, I feel like it's a healthy signpost for yeah. asking the question in the first place. Yep. Yep. I think it goes back to like, same thing. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Generally speaking, if you're asking that question, you probably haven't, right? Um, man, I, I don't know if I've truly come to Christ or if I've, I've come the right way. Well, if you're asking that question, that's a good sign. Yeah. Kristen? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Very, very good. Yep. Are you trusting him alone for salvation? Good. Yeah. So I, I hope you notice through this class, I'm not just, you know, hey, this is a fun read, but trying to move it practical. Like, how can I help myself? How can I help other people? Um, and maybe you think of these pictures. Uh, Travis, you have some? Um, I love the verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Yeah. And you're determined to evaluate the life. So that's not changing. Faith without works is dead. Right. So like, what are you 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think going there too is um, someone I think explained it helpfully is that we're a new creation. We're not a perfected creation yet, right? So if we have a newfound source of strength and joy, right, in the Christian life, even just a little bit, you know, that means something, right? Of course, we haven't reached, you know, perfection yet, but we see now in a mirror dimly. But yeah, good point. Okay, chapter 12. I want to end here. Christian on the hill of difficulty. What does the difficulty represent? We've got about five, ten-ish minutes. and eh, we'll bend the time a little bit. Um, what does the difficulty represent? Well, Bunyan doesn't actually really say, here's the difficulty. And I think that's intentional. I think he's, you know, umbrella statement. There could be multiple types of hills of difficulties in the Christian life, okay? Uh, trials, temptations, sin, uh, grief, sorrow, suffering, all these things, right? So I, I think he's trying to say there are various difficulties that may come in the Christian life. Um, it says here, this is page 53. Now, I understand that they all continued. So this is uh, uh, Christian, formalist, and hypocrisy. Next scene, they continued on until they came to the foot of a hill, at the bottom of which was a spring. At the same place, two other ways joined with the straight way coming from the wicked gate. One turned to the left hand and the other to the right at the bottom of the hill. However, the narrow way continued straight up the hill, its name being difficulty. Okay, so you've got the straight and narrow way, which, we're bu- hey, that's the way you want to go, Okay. And then you've got two ways around the difficulty, okay? This is a very helpful illustration for me, right? We're very tempted to think, you know what? God's way is not actually best for me. And I'm looking at this hill and it doesn't look like it's going to be good for me, okay? This is much more appealing, okay? It's very, very helpful. Um, There's two ways that seem easier. One is called danger. The other is called destruction. Formalist and hypocrisy, as we would expect, they see the hill Nope, this isn't the way I want to go. Hey, you go that way, I'll go this way. He says one leads into a great wooded forest. He's lost in there. The other goes into dark mountains where, quote, he stumbled and fell never to rise again. You don't want to go those ways, okay? That's the clear point. But Christian is determined to go on. He says, I need to go this way. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. I love these last two lines. Better, though difficult, the right way to go. than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. I mean, just so true. How many of us, we sin because we think it's the easier thing to do, only to realize this was horrible. Is that not what we do? Like, it's just like, this seems better. And then we go down the path of destruction. Thankfully, by God's grace, we fall and actually rise again. Um, we don't perish like formless in hypocrisy, but a very sobering reminder. So Christian, he continues up the hill. It's very, very difficult. Um, you know, I think it says he's, you know, he starts like running and he's like jogging and then he's like just barely crawling up the hill. Okay. Um, he comes to a shady resting place. He footnotes a place of protection, <coughs> excuse me, a place of protection, a shady arbor. Okay. It's not meant to be a place of sleeping. Okay, this is key. It's, it's meant to be like you take a break. Okay, you take a breather. You know, you drink some water, you gather your strength, and then you keep going, right? Got an illustration here. I used to go backpacking a lot um, in high school. I got married, have kids, and now I don't do any of that anymore, which is fine. I have way more fun with my kids. I'm like, why did I do this? I don't want to go be freezing. Um, but anyways, I would do that. And uh, um, we do these long hikes, you know, sometimes back in these lakes. And one time, I remember, we set out way too late. And we were like, oh, man, this is not going to be good. And we actually ended up, we, we got off the right path. And uh, 
we went up on like the side of this hill and um, it's supposed to be like a five mile hike and we're like six miles in and we're like, where is this lake? We're up on the side, it's pitch black and we like look down, it's like down below and there's this huge lake and we're like, ah. Oh. So, you know, it's like pitch black, we have our like flashlights out, we're just like going down the side of this mountain and uh, yeah, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I think just the point here, you know, on those hikes, you're meant to, you know, pause, take a break, you know, get some strength, but you don't sleep, right? Because if you sleep, you're going to wake up and it's dark and you're going to get lost like me, okay? So don't fall asleep. And what does Christian do? He falls asleep, okay? What all is going on here? He's relieved at the arbor. He takes out his scroll, uh, his fresh garments. He's encouraged by them. He falls asleep. He drops his scroll. Which remember, it talks about the promised uh, seal of the Holy Spirit. Bunyan's footnote here is the best one in the entire book. It says, he who sleeps is a loser. It's just so good. That's, I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah, he who sleeps is a loser. Uh, someone comes along. We don't know who he just said, hey, wake up. What are you doing? Okay. And he's like, oh, man, hey, I, I fell asleep. I shouldn't have done this. And he, then he tries to keep going. Okay. He reaches the top of the hill. Okay. Um, and, and I want to kind of pause, consider here. We've got like five minutes. We saw Christian fall asleep just right after we saw three sleeping dudes. Okay, so what, what, like, why is he talking about sleep, like all this stuff? What's the whole point? I already alluded to this. He's not talking about physical sleep. He's talking about spiritual sleep, negligence, right? You can think of 1 Thessalonians 5, which calls us to stay awake. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 to 8. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day, he's talking about the day of the Lord, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Okay, he's not talking about physical sleep. Spiritually. Hey, we are of the day. Or we're not of, you know, the things of the night. Sin, things like that. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what happens when he drops his scroll? Um, a pastor put it like this way. He says, it's not safe to live on past grace. I think that's a very helpful line. It is not safe as Christians for us to live on past grace. And I think this is kind of what Christian is doing here. He's looking at his new garments. He's looking at the, you know, his scroll and he's going, man, I'm, I'm doing pretty good in the Christian life. Like, I, I've got all these blessings, all these wonderful things. This is, this is wonderful. And I think, I, I was just thinking about that, what came to mind is 1 Corinthians 10, I think verse 12, right? Therefore, let any man who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall, right? It's when we think that, man, I'm doing so great, all these things. That's when we grow negligent, we fall asleep, and we fall, okay? I think that's what Bunyan is alluding to here. We cannot be content resting in yesterday. We need to continue to strive that God would powerfully continue to work within us. Again, in losing his scroll, I don't think he's saying he lost the Holy Spirit or anything like that, but rather he lost the comfort or the assurance of the Holy Spirit, okay? That oftentimes happens in our lives, right? Uh, sin and the Spirit are not going to willingly coexist, and so when we're living in sin and disobedience, we should not be surprised that we no longer have sweet experiences of God's grace, okay? That's, that's the absence of the Holy Spirit in those moments is the Holy Spirit's way of saying, hey, get back on track. So, he even says this in the next chapter uh, when he finds a scroll. This scroll is the assurance of his life and the token of his acceptance at the desired heaven. I'm just real quickly going to go, chapter 13 is real short. Christian is approached by timorous and mistrust. You see these two dudes, they're running 
the other way. Okay, so Christian's going up the hill of difficulty, and they come running back. So they're going the wrong direction. Okay, um, they're saying it's too dangerous. Hey, there's two lions in the path ahead. You do not want to go this way. Christian replies, "Hey, I'm afraid, but where else can I go? I I, I know I have to go this way. If I go back to the city of destruction, I'm just going to be destroyed." I love this paragraph here. He says, therefore, I must press forward in spite of risks and perils. To go back is to certainly suffer death, but to go forward, though fear of death will threaten along the way, is yet to have the prospect of eternal life beyond here. I will definitely go forward. I think just reflective of just a faithful, plodding Christian. It's going to be difficult, but I know I have to go this way. I'm going on the straight and narrow conviction that we need to have as well. He reaches into his chest pocket looking for, you know, the scroll, um, looking for the sweet comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it's gone. He's lost it. Oh, my goodness, what have I done, right? So he's grieved that he could be so negligent. Uh, he echoes Romans 7. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, and he runs back. He has to go back to the arbor. I think this is um, uh, illust- illustrative, illustrative, illustrative is the right way to say it, right? Sounds proper. And elegant, but it's illustrative of the Christian life, right? Oftentimes, um, you know, when we sin, we have to go back and retrace our steps, right? How, how did this happen, right? Like, what was I doing, right? So we, you know, our progress is stunted. We have to go back. How do I guard against this in the future? And I already mentioned this. I think the whole section could be summed up. First Corinthians ten twelve. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take take, take heed lest he stumble. There's dangers if we presume upon the grace of God, okay? He continues on his way, and finally he sees a very regal palace. Think of a majestic royal kingdom, and that's where I will leave you guys. The palace beautiful, which in case you didn't know, this is an illustration of the church. It's a good reminder for all of us. How many of us think of the church as a beautiful palace? Um, It's a convicting and sobering reminder, right? So that'll be next week. And I think we'll spend the whole week probably on Palace Beautiful. Very, very helpful chapter. You guys are dismissed. If you have any questions, happy to talk to you. Sorry for keeping you guys a little late.